Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. Uh, Over the past few weeks, uh, we've been in a series called Embracing Exile, uh, where we've been using exile as a metaphor to help narrate uh, where the church, uh, particularly the church in North America, might find itself. Uh, This is part five of a seven-part series, and so uh, in just a couple of weeks we'll be done, and we'll begin a series through the book of Colossians, so we have that to look forward to. I want to mention, though, at the beginning of today, uh, today's message, that I certainly understand that the metaphor of exile uh, is probably met with varying degrees of resonance uh, for many of you. Uh, there are probably some of you f- for whom uh, the, the metaphor of exile uh, in this whole series makes maybe little or no sense. Uh, and you're kind of like, this is, uh, we just can't wait till we can kind of bear through this one. Uh, There are others of you that may resonate with the metaphor to the degree that we use it to talk about how the church used to be in positions of power and influence, uh, but have largely lost those positions over the last few years. Uh, And maybe that might be where you find a real degree of resonance uh, with this metaphor. Uh, Still others of you may resonate with this metaphor if we use it to talk about how Christianity uh, used to be the assumed religion of the land. Uh, that there once was a day growing up in America that uh, you could assume that everyone had uh, some basic knowledge of the biblical story or some, uh, some degree of, of Christian values. And, and maybe that uh, isn't the case anymore, and that can certainly feel a bit like exile. I wanted this morning uh, to, to share with you a little bit uh, and share with you actually quite honestly uh, how this metaphor makes the most sense uh, to me. Uh, And over the past probably two or three years, uh, I've been more and more concerned with people and movements uh, that bear the name of Christ. That is to say that I've begun to notice, and I think uh, with many others as well, uh, that there are things that bear the name of Christ that don't look like Christ at all. Uh, That there are those who call themselves Christians, but by their actions seem to be more concerned with maintaining power and privilege than with the teachings of Jesus. And while I'm certain that this is nothing new, uh, that probably every generation at some point would have been able to say the exact same thing, uh, I certainly have begun to notice uh, that there are certain things, movements that bear the name of Christ that to me look nothing like the biblical Jesus, uh, and it starts to feel uncomfortable starts to feel a bit like exile. Um, And so what God has been stirring in me for a number of years now uh, is how the teachings of Jesus have all sorts of implications uh, that go beyond personal morality and then should inform my views on culture and politics, etc., etc. And I want to admit out loud, I know how odd this sounds to say Jesus should inform my views of how I see things and my perspectives. And I think I probably would have always said that. I probably would have always said that that was true. Uh, But I think it was probably, looking back, it was probably largely only true to the degree that Jesus' teachings could be used to prop up my own tribe or advance our own cause. And so I've come to see that some versions of Christianity seem to be more concerned with using the Christian faith as a way of gaining influence and getting a particular job done than with following the ways of Jesus. Uh, And when you come to those realizations, 
uh, it can feel a bit like exile. Uh, so for me, the exile metaphor speaks to a feeling of displacement from a world that was easy. A world where, with clear answers, a world where my tribe was always right, a world of black and white. Uh, and now the world just feels more complicated and is colored in all kinds of shades. Uh, and I feel a sense of exile as we, as we kind of gain awareness that there's systemic sin in many ways the church has either ignored or is working hard to hold it up. Uh, how's that for an upbeat beginning to the message? <laughs> they say in preaching class, tell a funny story uh, to start your messages. So uh, I think I failed today. Um, but uh, they also say in preaching class, be honest. And I want to I lean into honesty today. And so that's, the, that's how this exile of metaphor most resonates with me. Uh, so what we've been talking about is, is how do we respond in exile to whatever degree that we find resonance with this metaphor or in whatever way this metaphor resonates within us, how do we respond to this feeling of displacement or this feeling of exile? Uh, and, and first of all, we learned that we need to embrace it as a time when God is at work. Uh, we need to embrace exile as a time when God is at work. Uh, we also need to solidify our identity as God's people by rooting ourselves in the Christian story. That there are all sorts of narratives that are seeking to, to give us an identity. And, and a lot of times we can count on those other narratives to kind of gain our identity from. Or we can lose our Christian identity as we depend on these other narratives of the world. And what we decided and what we learned is that we need to, we need to center ourselves on the Christian story as the people of God, as a way of solidifying our identity in this time and in this place. And then last week we talked about how we need to develop a set of practices that will help us become God's unique people. What I want to do today is continue with this theme, but I want to look again at the prophet Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah has so much good and valuable things to say to us uh, in the midst of exile. Uh, so I want to read actually a couple portions of scripture today. I want to read, I want to begin with Jeremiah 28, uh, and then I want to turn again to Jeremiah 29, which is actually where we began the series. Uh, we began the series in Jeremiah 29, 11, the famous passage. I want to actually look at some verses preceding that, um, leading up to verse 7. So uh, let, let's uh, look together. The, I think these will be up on the screen. Jeremiah 28, uh, verses 1 through 4, and then Jeremiah 29, uh, verses 1 and then 4 through 7. Jeremiah 28 says this, In the fifth month of that same year, the fourth year, early in the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, the prophet Hananiah, son of Azur, who was from Gibeon, said to me in the house of the Lord, in the presence of the priests and all the people, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says, I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years, I will bring back to this place all the articles of the Lord's house that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has removed from here and took to Babylon. I will also bring back to this place Jehoiakim, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and all the other exiles from Judah who went to Babylon, declares the Lord, for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. And then Jeremiah 29. 
This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent to Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests and the prophets of all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Skip down to verse 4. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those that I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so they too may have more sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Jeremiah 28 and 29 uh, is a bit like a tale of two dueling prophets. Uh, In one corner, you have Hananiah, who is convinced that within two years, God is going to move on behalf of the nation of Israel in such a powerful way that he is going to return everything to how it once was. That is to say that Hananiah, the prophet, is convinced that God is going to act so that it will be just like exile had never even happened. It's a pretty easy message to rally around. But the question we have to ask, though, is what kind of response does that message elicit in the exiles? Uh, that if we aren't, uh, we aren't really told exactly how these exiles responded, uh, but I'd be willing to bet that this message that, hey, exile isn't going to last very long, uh, go ahead and, 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 and just don't settle in, uh, but rather uh, God is going to move within two years. This is only, at best, within two years, this will be like a blip that never happened, don't worry about it, right? I'd be willing to bet that in the people this would produce a fair bit of angst, <laughs> There is peaceful hope, and there is fearful angst. And I'd be willing to bet that this kind of message would produce a fearful angst in people. If the message that was was that God is going to bring you back to the glory days when things were easy, then we would want to know, when then is God going to act? When are we going to have power again? When are we going to have influence again? When will, we, when will our privilege return? When are we going to start winning elections again? <laughs> when are we going to, you fill in the blank. And eventually that angst would give way to fear. Fear that things are not going our way. Fear that we are losing We're losing that power. We're losing that influence. What are we going to do? God has got to go show up. And he has got to show up soon, right? In fact, if you were trying to calm the fearful angst of the faithful masses, you might try to comfort them by saying something like, we are going to win so much you're going to be tired of winning. But the prophet Hananiah's message was essentially this, don't worry. The exile isn't going to last very long. Soon you will be returned to your proper place of prominence and privilege. 
Now in the other corner, we have Jeremiah, whose word from God to the exiles is this, settle down. Make a life for yourself in Babylon. Have kids, plant gardens, and work for the peace and prosperity of Babylon. Now the word here for peace is the word shalom. It means wholeness or welfare. The prophet Jeremiah says something that basically is work for the peace of Babylon. The very people who have captured you and brought you into exile work for their peace. Because when you work for their peace, peace will also come to you. Let's be honest about this for a moment. This is a message that's much harder to gather and rally around, right? Message number one, this is just a blip in the radar. God is going to bring you back to where you were just as though this had never happened. Yeah. Right? Message number two, this may last a while. So settle down. Build houses. Plant a garden. You're not going to plant a garden if you don't think you're going to be there a while. Have kids. Because <laughs> this may last a while. There, there is peaceful hope and there is fearful angst. And while this message from the prophet Jeremiah is far harder to rally around, I am really, really compelled by this message. Now, most scholars agree that the Old Testament scriptures, particularly the first five books of the Old Testament, that is what we call the Pentateuch, uh, that what we have and what we know as the first five books of the Old Testament were actually written down while the nation of Israel was in exile in Babylon. Uh, in other words, these, these words that we have were written down by a real person in real history. And when you think about when were these words written, most scholars agree that at least the first five books of the Bible uh, were written down while the nation of Israel was exiled in Babylon. And this makes sense, doesn't it? The scriptures that we know that tell the story of creation and sin and formation of a people and the release of that people from slavery and then establishment of covenant relationship with God, it makes sense that those stories and those scriptures would come to us during a time of exile. Because exile is a time, is a jarring time that leads to questions like, who are we and what are we doing here? Remember? We talked about that a couple weeks ago. And so the Judeans living in Babylon wrote down their story that we now know as the Old Testament in order to remind themselves and to say, this is who we are. This is who we are called to be. This is our story. This is our song. <laughs> Praising my Savior all the day long. Many of you didn't know I could sing. <laughs> and so what's interesting, though, is that Jeremiah's instructions to have children, to cultivate gardens, and to promote, promote the welfare of Babylon actually remind me of some key ideas of the creation story that these exiled people had written down. 
Genesis chapter 1, and I, I think that one of these weeks I'll get by a sermon, I'll get through a sermon without referencing Genesis chapter 1. Uh, but here it is again. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28 says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish and the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And so God created man humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And then I want you to look at verse 28 of Genesis chapter 1. God blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves along the ground. It seems to me that what Jeremiah instructs for this group in exile is really an echo of the original instructions from Genesis chapter 1. Be fruitful and multiply. You see, God tells Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. Jeremiah tells a nation in exile to have children and to give their children in marriage so that their children can have children. And this seems pretty simple, but I want you to put yourself in the shoes of those who could very easily feel as though all had been lost. Because in the middle of exile, when in in this feeling of, of dramatic displacement, it can feel as though all hope is lost. And again, depending on where you find resonance with this metaphor, you may yourself have felt there is no hope. For the future. All has been lost. It's easy for people in exile to say, I don't want to bring children into this broken, ugly, and evil world. In fact, have you noticed that in apocalyptic movies, they deal with this theme a lot. <laughs> the, 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 uh, any movie that is kind of post-apocalypse, although the world has been smashed apart, there's always kind of this question, if there is a love story in the movie, and there is, right? There's always this question of, do we bring a child into this world that seems so lost and void of hope? And it's really the filmmakers wrestling with what is actually a fair philosophical question. You know, do we want to bring, do we want to continue life when there is no hope or there appears to be no hope? Uh, Recently, Amy and I watched the entire Hunger Games series again. And this question, while certainly not a main theme, is, is, is raised. The main character, Katniss Everdeen, the girl on fire, is repulsed by the thought of bringing children into a world that is so broken and into the system of the districts of Pan Am, uh, which makes the epilogue scene all the more powerful, there with two children, saying there are worse games to play, right? I'm convinced that this instruction to be fruitful and multiply is given because having children is an act of peaceful hope. Bringing children into the world is, is, a, is a way of saying that one day we believe that God is going to make all things new. 
We believe that our hope does not lie in future generations themselves, like our hope isn't in our children, but we are going to bring children into the home as a way of embodying the hope that we have that it won't always be like this, right? And how often do you see the theme on social media pop up, we have to make a better world for our children, right? The, 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 the something of generations coming after us is this way of saying, I believe that things are going to get better. But listen, let's not misplace our hope in our children, but let's have children as a way of producing hope or demonstrating hope that God one day will make all things new. I'm convinced that the posture that most reflects the character of God is one of peaceful hope and not of one of fearful angst. Be fruitful and multiply. The second instruction is to fill the earth. Now, this instruction is not have so many kids that they fill this place. (laughs) It's far deeper and more significant than that. In fact, some scholars uh, have called this instruction to fill the earth, they have called this the cultural mandate. Uh, That is to say that humanity, you and I, are culture makers. That, That culture isn't something that we just find ourselves in. Culture isn't something that is just out there. Culture isn't something that's just around us, but rather we ourselves are culture makers. Because we make music and art and industry, etc. And so the command, fill the earth, is actually a command to fill the, is an invitation to use our giftedness to contribute to the goodness, the beauty, and the well-being of the world. Are you with me? Fill the earth is not have so many kids that they're all over the place. (laughs) but rather fill the earth is use your giftedness to contribute to the goodness, beauty, and well-being of the world. That there is something good and holy about taking our gifts, making something, and then offering it to God and to one another. What I'm talking about is work. I don't don't mean like, oh, this is work. I mean literally, your work. (laughs) your work, your vocation, your job. That work, when, when thought of properly and when properly understood, is actually the ordering of creation, the harnessing of the earth's potential to create something for the good of others. That's work. And it could be in goods or it could be in services. But the call and the mandate to fill the earth is actually, uh, is actually a, a gift from God that we might work in such a way that we are benefiting others both to the glory, of, glory and good, to the good of others and to the glory of God. That's your job. Now some of you are like, that's not my job. <laughs> but work, when properly understood, is exactly that. Some of you are musicians. Now, let me say this, work, vocation, could be the source of your paycheck, but it also could not be, right? 
So some of you are like, I just have a J-O-B, that is it. I'm just getting a job. Uh, but, but there is this sense in which work, vocation, is this good gift from God. Some of you are musicians and you bring beauty into the world through your music. If I could pick for a moment on my friend Ryan, <laughs> who plays all the instruments? I've been in many environments, Ryan, where your playing has brought beauty into the world. And it is a gift. Most recently, I was struck with, I've never heard anyone accompany the song, His Eyes on the Sparrow, than the way Ryan did at Nancy's funeral a few weeks ago. There was something divine about that. But it isn't just Christian music. There is something good and holy about filling the earth with creativity and with music, whether or not it bears the label of Christian. If you've ever heard of the piano guys, no fans. Let me tell you about the piano guys. The piano guys are four guys on a piano that make music by playing keys or plucking the strings or hitting the frame, or doing all kinds of things that you never dreamed of doing on a piano, and it is amazing. If you go down the YouTube black hole of the band OK Go and their music videos, and it is a black hole, like, it, it is a, like planned to be there a little while, but it is phenomenal because it puts creativity, the creativity of humans on full display. And you think to yourself, how in the world did they do that? There is something good and something holy just about blessing the world with that level of creativity. Are you with me? Or the raw musical talent of Walk Off the Earth. There are are five people that can reimagine songs in the most creative ways, another well worth your time YouTube black hole. So if nothing else from this sermon, you've got some things to do this afternoon on a just cold, rainy fall day, right? Like if you're like, hey, what was that sermon about the piano guys? If you know nothing else, I've at least given you some direction for the internet, right? There are worse things on the internet. These are some great things to do. Some of you are musicians, some of you are artists that create visually stunning pieces that speak into our lives and touch our hearts. Stunning murals like the one behind me that was created by one of our own, Cole Zawadzki, designed this mural every time I walk into this sanctuary, and I promise I'm in here more than (laughs) y'all. My breath is almost taken away. Let me tell you the story of this mural. Do we have time? We got tons of time. Um, <laughs> let me tell you the story of this mural. Uh, Corey Snyder, they've since moved to Kansas City, great friends of ours. Uh, she kind of oversaw all the aesthetic and creative kind of stuff of the church. And uh, we just got to a trust relationship with her where she'd say, hey, I have this crazy idea. And I'd be like, okay, go for it. Uh, so the story of the mural is she came to me one day and she said, I want to paint a mural uh, on, the, on the wooden wall at the back of the sanctuary, or the front of the sanctuary, uh, and, and I want your permission to do it. Um, but I don't want you to see the design or anything else. And I said, whew, you are asking a lot. Um, and and I said, all I said was, 
I, I said two things. Uh, Corey, I trust you, so okay. And number two, I just feel like I should tell you murals make me really nervous. <laughs> like, because murals are either good or they are really bad, you know? They're like dramas in church. They're just either good or they are so bad, right? So I thought that'd be funnier than it was. Anyway, um, so that's the story. Like stunning murals created by Cole or, um, or Melissa Poppy's painting. Love is greater than fear. We got a picture of it. That painting says so much. Like that paint, this painting is a sermon. And it is a gift to the world. I'm going to pick on everybody today. <laughs> Real estate agents. I know of one at least. <laughs> Can you imagine moving into our area, unfamiliar with your surroundings, and trying to break into the housing market? Some of you are like, yes, I can. Right? Crazy. But think about how it is. Think about such a gift it is to have someone on your side helping you out. I like, Brady, I like to think of real estate agents as housing ministers. That's right. Put it on your business card. Brady Walters, minister of housing. Right? Because that's a ministry. That's bringing something good into the world. Educators, many of you are educators, helping children and adults learn and make sense of the world. You invest your time and your energy into other people. I'd like to call you ministers of learning. What you're doing is good and valuable. Baristas, <laughs> have you ever thought about all the people that are involved in getting you your cup of your morning latte, your cup of morning joe, right? From the coffee farmer, to the syrup makers, to the cup manufacturer, to the marketers, to the barista who makes it perfect just for you, just how you like it. All so that you can go about your day properly fueled and sugared to go about your work. Your barista is the minister of lattes. <laughs> or engineers who go and figure out how things are supposed to be. You've heard the one, haven't you? Where the optimist looks at the glass and said the glass is half full. The pessimist looks at the glass and says the glass is half empty. The engineer looks at the glass and says, why is the glass twice as large as it needs to be? <laughs> Engineers, come on, that is funny. Like, don't, don't, don't control your laughter. It's okay to laugh in church. That's funny. Okay, or inventors, right? Inventors, those who look at the world and see what isn't there. Those who look at the world through the lens of potential. Those who see and think about what could be. Those who try to solve interesting problems. This is all filling the earth with holy work. The point is that fill the earth is an instruction from God to go and create. Help one another Work for the good of others. Bless Babylon. And then have dominion over creation. Be caretakers. You know, sometimes we view this world as though it's a rental. And we're like, nothing parties like a rental, right? 
Nothing drives like a rental, you know? Like some of you are like, did the pastor just say that? Yeah, yeah, I did, yep. And some of you view the world that way, right? As though this world is a rental. No, this is the place for which we have been created, for which Jesus died so that all of creation will be redeemed. Everywhere we are sent, we are to see that this belongs to God. And I can do my best to reflect his beauty back into the world. What I want you to see is that Jeremiah's instructions to the people of God in exile were essentially, go about the work that you've been called to since all of creation. Let me get really upfront for a moment. And, and I don't want to be too, I don't want to be too much here. Um, I recognize that this could be met in different ways. Uh, but I want you to hear me, and I want you to hear my heart. Uh, I, co- I come to you this morning as a pastor and as a preacher who is pretty uncertain about what the future holds but is determined to be a prisoner of hope. But I also come to you mostly uncomfortable with the role of spiritual leadership in the world today. Uh, Because the truth is, is I, I, I just, I'm not sure what to do, I'm not sure how to navigate, and I don't know exactly how to lead when a president openly mocks a victim of abuse or disabled folks to the cheers of the crowd. I don't know what to do or or even how to, I'm not quite sure how to lead when many who confess the name of Jesus are the ones cheering. I, I don't know what to do, I'm not quite sure how to lead when research shows that it is Christians more than any other demographic that support the death penalty. I'm not exactly sure what to do. I don't know exactly how to lead when those who call the biblical story of creation their own deny that climate change is real and needs to be addressed. And if I could be quite open and honest with you today, and I'm not trying to be like too political, I'm just trying to tell you where I'm at. I find all of this deeply unsettling, uh, which makes me quite uncomfortable in my role of spiritual leadership in the world. Um, But it helps me, it helps me when I read someone else's ancient mail from the prophet Jeremiah And he says, have children, build homes, cultivate gardens, and work for the shalom of Babylon. Because when you do, you reflect the image of God to the world. Uh, recently, we went and saw a, a, a politically charged documentary with some friends of ours, uh, and the film was sobering, to say the least. 
so after the movie, we were having ice cream, which w was what we felt like the immediate solution to the problem was if we find ourselves kind of sad, uh, I think ice cream would help. So we, so we were having ice cream, uh, and we were talking about what we had just seen, and, and I was actually admitting to, to, to our friends, friends of ours that uh, what I had just admitted to you, that I really wasn't quite sure what to do. Uh, and I was maybe feeling a little bit uncomfortable, especially given my role of spiritual leadership. And so I asked the question, what do I do? What do we do? And my friend said, you're doing it. You are creating a space for people to wrestle with truth and to seek to live out the way of Jesus. That's what you do. And you're doing it. That was helpful to me. Because uh, it certainly doesn't feel like much. And so I want to say all of that to say to you today. Even if it doesn't feel like much, this is how you live faithfully in this time. Go about your work with honesty and fairness, seeking the good of others. Raise your boys to respect women, to hear their voices and value their strength. Raise your daughters to speak up, believe in themselves, and know that they are loved for reasons that have nothing to do with how they look. Church in exile, bring beauty into the world by making art, by playing music, by writing poetry, by capturing the beauty of creation through the frame of a lens. Church in exile, create, analyze, organize, manufacture, test, whatever it is you do. Do it for the good of humanity and God will be glorified. Amen? The only way to pierce the darkness is by shining a light and so shine away. <laughs> be known by what you are for, not what you are against. I'm not sure when Christians started having such a negative posture toward the world and toward culture but it probably was the moment that we forgot that we are part of culture. That we are culture makers. And so my final encouragement to you today is to have a posture of blessing to the world around you. Spend less time boycotting and more time blessing. Spend less time judging and more time creating. Spend less time being critical and more time being creative. Church in exile, build homes, have children, cultivate gardens, and seek the welfare of Babylon. Because when they are blessed, we are blessed as well. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, we need your strength today. 
We need your encouragement today. And God, we need you in your Holy Spirit and by your Holy Spirit to fill our hearts and our lives so full that we may live faithfully as a people of God in this time and in this place. It would be easy, perhaps it would even be the default, to have our hearts filled with a fearful angst of how long will we feel this discomfort? How long will this exile last? When will you move on our behalf so powerfully that it's as though this would never happen? But God, may we, not be fear, may we not be filled with fearful angst. May we be filled with peaceful hope. That in fact, it is during this time that you are doing some of your most significant work in us and among us. And so God, help us to see where you are at work. Help us, God, to be in tune with your spirit. And God, we may need to make some adjustments along the way, adjustments to our actions, adjustments to our ways of thinking, adjustments to our posture toward life and culture and the world. But God, may we be faithful to make those adjustments in obedience to you. And I pray, God, that as each of us goes to work tomorrow morning, that we would begin to see that this is a holy calling, that we have, we have opportunities for ministry to serve others, to serve you, to bring you glory in the things that we find ourselves doing, whatever it is. And so, God, tomorrow may we go to work with a new sense of purpose and a new fervor. May we see ourselves as ministers of learning, ministers of housing, minister of lattes. God, whatever it is, may we begin to see the ways in which we are serving the good of humanity through our work. And Lord, may we be blessed for it. May you be glorified in it. That is our prayer today, God. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.